You're listening to the Talk Story Radio Network. Welcome to another edition of Swoops World, right here on the new Talk Story Radio Network. Swoops World, where you get all you need to know about arts, culture, news, and happiness. Our number, if you want to give us a call tonight, is 562-912-3444. You can always email us at swoopsworld at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Once again, if you want to give us a call, that number is 562-912-3444. Now just sit back and enjoy another edition of Swoops World on the new Talk Story Radio Network. back to swoops world man it's been a minute since i've been on man i I think it was last one we did was in 17 but we're happy to be back we're gonna get rolling here um looking forward to tonight's show because we uh we got a good friend of mine on that i want to introduce you to and and let you know what he's all about but uh today is (laughs) august 13th 2020 so uh you know without further ado let me tell you a little bit about our guest tonight is Maurice Landrum. I know him as Mo. Uh, full disclosure, I've known Mo for about 35 years now. We actually used to work together. Uh, but he's, a, he's an experienced, uh, highly, highly uh, uh, acclaimed law enforcement professional. And he's written a book called Gangsters, Narcotics, Homicides, Protecting the Thin Blue Line. Welcome to the show, Mo. Hey, thank you very much. It, it, it's, it's, good, it's good to have you on. And... Um, you know, for our listeners who, you know, who don't know you, tell just a little brief little little bit about yourself, where, where you're from, and, and how you decided you wanted to write a book. Okay, well, I'm from uh, Southern California. Um, a little bit about me. Currently, I'm married. been married for the last 34 years. In fact, you were with me when I filed my divorce papers to free myself from my first marriage. <laughs> That's a long story. Anyway, I'm married now. I've been married to the same, uh, same bride for 33 years. Um, I have three kids, four grandchildren. Nice. Um, I, uh, as you know, I joined the Los Angeles Police Department back in May of uh, 1983. I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself here. No, no, no. Okay. And uh, I, I did a, a full career there. I, I uh, retired honorably there in October of 2004 to be hired on by the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office, where I worked as a senior investigator for them. And in June of 2012, I was promoted to the rank of a district attorney supervising investigator. And the significance of that is I was the first African-American promoted in the Bureau's history to that, lo- to that position. And that was, that was a, uh, a milestone for me. I uh, retired in, uh, in December of 2016. I have a private investigator's license, so I dabble around in that. And I sat around and I started thinking about uh, what we did for a living, Swoop. And I said, you know what? I said, my kids and my family really didn't understand or, or understand the gravity of what we did for a living. 
yeah. and how it was back in 1983 and during the early 80s and 90s. And I decided to to write that down, reduce it to writing, and just tell my story. And that's what I did. Awesome, awesome. You listen to Swoops Road on the Talk Story Radio Network. We, we're here with Maurice Landrum, and we're discussing his book, Gangsters, Narcotics, Homicide, Protecting Thin Blue Line. Mo, what I have to, uh, one of the things I have to commend you for, I, you know, I, you and I both, everybody has written or has read a lot of police uh, books, novels, uh, or true stories, whatever you want to call them. Um, but man, I mean, you, you, you went in, you did the good, the bad, the ugly. You, you talked about your, your achievements, uh, your penalties, uh, and everything in between. And, and, you know, that's, you should be commended for that because a lot of times, you know, you can read a book and you can say, you know, they're, this is, they're, they're taking some artistic license here, or that would have, that would have led to this, or that would have led to that. And they don't, they don't go into it. And you, you went on, you went on head on, uh, full steam ahead with it, didn't you? Well, yeah, you know what? I wanted to, to, to obviously to be a realistic book, which is the truth. It's based on my career. And just like you said, it's the good, bad, and the ugly. You were there with me on some of my capers there and, uh, full disclosure. And everything there is true. There's no fluff in there. There's no just writing something just to write it. Everything in that book occurred. Let's let's start. Let's start. You know, way back. I, I, you know, you, even though I've known you for so long, I, I mean, I as far as my knowledge of you know, you're growing up and stuff. I picked up. You know, I I can always remember that you you'd gone to Lakewood. Um, but there were some. I found out things about you here that I just didn't know. I mean, I, you know, and and one of the things that was I found really interesting uh which is not something that you know we, we wish upon our kids but as a young child you you, you stumbled upon a, mur a murder victim well that's correct yeah when i was uh living in park village that's in the city of compton i was playing uh, uh baseball and so my uh my friend and i were walking we're on our way to the to the park for a game that evening and as we're walking down the street we start seeing this blood splatter on the ground and, you know, being curious, it's bright red blood splatter. So we start following the blood trail and it led into an apartment complex. And with inside the apartment, apartment complex, there lied a, a body there, a, you know, black male, eyes open. And he was what we call now in our language, DRT, dead right there. But he had been shot numerous times. And people started whispering that, hey, he tried to break into a house and the owner of the occupant of the house shot him. So. That was my my first time ever seeing a dead body, and uh, but unfortunately, like I wrote in my book, it wouldn't be my last. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. And you know, at a young age, you're one of the one of the people that uh, who was able to do what what he always knew he wanted to do. You you said you stood up at five years old and told your teacher you wanted to be a police officer. That's correct. how did you know? How did you know that young? You know what? I, I had I had good influence. My dad was in my life during that time, and uh, he was really good friends with uh, members of the Compton Police Department. And there was a sergeant there named Sergeant Joe, and I, I still remember that guy. And my dad used to take me up to the Compton Police Station, and I would go around, and I would sit there, and Sergeant Joe would always come up to me, hey, listen, you want to be a, a junior police officer? And he'd give me a little sticker on me and stuff like that and that always resonated with me you know i always i always had a positive uh interaction with the police department and that's what i knew and and i just knew that i wanted to help people you know that's so interesting because 
I think all of us, you know, we, we, we were in the department in the early 80s through 90s and all the way up until the early 2000s. Uh, but one of the things that I always, I always found important that you gave young kids a, a positive experience. You know, and on the regular, we dealt with, you know, rapists, robbers, murderers, uh, big time criminals, but also on a daily basis, you'd have an opportunity to see a, a young kid and stuff like that. And so obviously it was important to you. How important to you throughout your career was it to, to leave a lasting positive impression on a young, a young child? Well, you know what? Um, so that, that's a, that's a good question. You know, oftentimes, and you and I work together, we're working in areas that, and I always look at it like this, if people could do better, they would do better. So people are living in a, an area or they're in a certain demographic because that's what, that's the best they could do. So my job and our job was to always make sure that number one, that the community was safe and also reach out to the, the kids because, you know, oftentimes parents used to say things to them that I, I just didn't agree with. Like, hey, that police officer is going to take you to jail if you don't act right. And I didn't really like that because now these kids pick up that the police are bad and we're, we're not bad. We're here to help. And I always like to reach out and go that little extra mile and take time, pass out baseball cards to the kids, talk to them, kind of stir them away from gangs, stir them away from dope. You know, and that was, that was my focus. And, and see if, you know, if I could help them along to, to go to school or do the things that they need to do to, you know, to become a, a good, positive member of society. Yeah. Um, we're going we're gonna to move into to you going to the academy, but I, I want to say that, the, you know, there's so much in this book, and I, we're not going to touch on it all, and I, I want to hit some highlights um, because I want people to go out and buy the book and, and, and read it for themselves. But there's so many things in the book, and, you know, I know people have said, Mo, how do you remember all this stuff? How do you remember all this stuff? But let me attest, because, you know, I worked with you. I've seen uh -huh. your mind at work. I've, I, I, I remember times when we would interact with somebody, and then eight months later, We'd interact with them again, and you still remembered everything about them. You remember their name, the address, you know, their, their, their ID number, and stuff like that. And so there's no doubt in my mind that what's in here is accurate <laughs> because I've seen how well you remember things. Um, in, you know, I mean, you're a youngster, so you didn't get in the academy until 83. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> hey. I, I had a whole five, whole five months on you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you decided, you know, you, you talked about when you, when you decided to go and you had, you had a, 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 a kind of a mentor to tell you go ahead and, and go ahead and apply and, and skip the reserve route. Uh, when you got there day one, uh, a lot of us who, although we played sports and we did all this other stuff that weren't in the military, day one, standing on that line in, in the gym is, can, can, be a, can be a shock to some people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's at that point, and for me, I, I remember it like it's yesterday. We had, uh, you know, Bob Farley and Todd uh, uh, Chamberlain. They walked in. I mean, it's, and these, both of these guys were just like spit shining. What I mean by that is these guys were just sharp. They had Class A uniforms on, that's long sleeve shirt and ties, badge. Their leather gear was shining, badges were shining. I mean, these guys... And, and the old thing that they used to say, there was no Irish pennants on them. I mean, their, their uniform was just clean. I mean, they were the epitome of, of Los Angeles police officers. That's, we were looking at what we wanted to be, what we were striving to be. 
And uh, I, I tell you that I remember standing on the line that day and they were going down and kind of sizing us up and it was, it was interesting. What, uh, what were your thoughts at that time? I, I can tell you for, for me, um, the guy who was standing next to me, the moment the, 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 the team came in and started screaming at us and telling us to do this, to do that, literally the guy standing next to me goes, fuck this, I don't need this. And he walked off right then and there at, I don't know, 6.05 a.m. <laughs> uh, what, were your, what, were your, what were your thoughts? I mean, you, you, you respected them. They came in high and tight. They looked, they looked the part. They looked like everything we, we'd seen, Adam 12, uh, Dragnet, all that kind of stuff. But uh, mentally, you know, you, you, you're, not, you're five minutes into a six-month hitch, basically, uh, to get out. What, what were your immediate thoughts? You know, my thoughts was, hey, you know what? Uh, this job is for me. I want to, you know, I want to be a part of this. You know, I had a young daughter then, and I says I was thinking about it was it paid good benefits, but but more than that, I was where I wanted to be. That this was my trial, my my childhood dream. This is what I wanted to do for a living. And I looked at you know sizing up the people on the left and the right of me, just like you, and I says, hey, you know what? If this person can do it, I can do it. And, and that was my that was my mantra. I just wanted to continue to progress and and look forward to moving in through the academy and you know and just facing. You have to take it a day at a time. You know, you get six months, you know, 924 hours, but you have to you have to take it one day at a time, not a week at a time, one day at a time, and just deal with that one day, And you, as you well know. Absolutely. You know, there are so many things, you know, we came in, in, in you know, in, in the early 80s, and, um, you know, the people before us, I know, I, I talked to, like, my training officers who've come in in the 70s and stuff like that. And they're talking about a lot of them, you know, they, they came with, you know, a lot of them were vets out of Vietnam, even mm -hmm. a lot of the women, uh, you know, this was a, this was a calling for them. Uh, I noticed in my class, and, and you mentioned in your book as well, you run across a few people who were, it was just an opportunity for benefits. It wasn't a, it wasn't a calling. It was a, right. it was a, I, I saw an ad and, uh, you know, I, I was working aerospace, whatever, and they were, they were, you know, they were, cutting, cutting jobs. So I just figured I'd jump over here and get some benefits. Uh, <clears throat> you know, after training, people change and people develop into whatever they are going to be. But what, what are your thoughts? What were your thoughts when you, you would, when you came in with your attitude, with your desire, that's a lifelong desire to find out that there's people there who really don't have the passion for it? You know, it was interesting because I remember when I drove up that day, there was a guy in a, a maroon Mercedes Benz and he drove up and I go, wow. And he was in our class and uh, what's that next to him? So I asked him, I go, Hey, I go, why'd you apply for a job? I mean, you got this Mercedes Benz. He goes, Hey, I was working real estate. And he says the real estate market, as you know, it, it took a downturn during that time. The market took a dive. And he, and he told me, he goes, Hey, you know, I just, I need this job for benefits for my family. And I kind of looked at that and I kind of knew in my heart of hearts that this guy wasn't going to last long because this, this was a job for few men and women and no boys and girls at all. True that, true that. During, your, during the training phase, um, you know, we go through, you go through a lot. You went through, you know, the, 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 the penal code, learning the laws, you learn in department policy, you learn in physical fitness, you learn in weapons. Um, what did, and, and you excelled. I mean, you, 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 set, you set a record for uh, pull-ups, I believe you said. Um, what was the training, what you expected? Did you prepare properly for that? A lot of people come in and they don't know what to expect. And 
and you know, and it's and they struggled and and to get to get to get going. You know, some of them they'll catch up, but were you already prepared for all that? Well, I, I uh, the the physical uh, parts of the of the academy, I was trained for that. I obviously I was never in the military. My dad was a, a United States Marine, and so I grew up in that environment. But I was never personally myself in the military. And I thank those folks for their service because they've done a lot for us. You know, I, I you know, we, we, I can't hold a candle to those folks. And I mean, and I did, I did my time in the streets and I took care of business, but I really appreciate our military. I just wanted to, to uh, say that. Absolutely. But, uh, I was, uh, I was really, I was ready to go. I mean, I ran every day before I went to cabin. I did pushups. I just, I didn't know what to expect, but I knew physically anything that was going to be, it's going to be physical. I was built for that. You know, I was a, a karate guy before I came in the academy. So all the self-defense stuff, I knew I would, I would excel with that. Um, classroom stuff, I did well there, you know, because we're learning, as you know, we're learning, we're learning law. We're, we're taking law school basically in, in a shorter period amount of time. And we're learning about traffic violations, you know, civil law, criminal law. You know, it's just it's just a bunch of different things that, you know, and then you it's kind of like the IPAP method. You know, they introduce us to something, we practice it, we apply it, you know, and then they, they you know, they want to check and see how we did, you know, kind of like analyze us. And so, we you know, you, you it's interesting because you're, you're in a, a sterile environment and you learn all these different techniques every day out there, you know, for the um, for self-defense. Every day we were going to the range. We were shooting every day. Remember that? We, just, we shot every single day. So uh, I would have to say here, and, and, and I hope this is not a bias, but Los Angeles police officers with regards to training, shooting and training are by far probably some of the best trained officers on the planet. And I, I could say that, I mean, we, we, we're seeing issues now, but I'm telling you back then we were trained because I don't know, a lot of academies, and when I retired from LAPD and I went out to San Bernardino County DA, I trained up at San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. They're focused on one, one threat target. I mean, we were shooting multiple targets, you know, six rounds, two and a half seconds, attention. And we remember that, and we were yeah. to the body, one in the head. I mean, we were just, we were dialed in. And so I, yeah, it's bar none. It's, uh, yeah, the, the, the training, the training there is exceptional. And you know, and, and when, one of the things, but you know, with all the training, and, and we, we've all experienced this, with all the training and everyone, uh, when you hit the streets, you, know, it, 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 you, you, you have that, you have that training to fall back on, but you know, that's all, that, that's an environment that's set up for us. Right. And when Foundation. you're on the streets, anything can happen. Exactly. <laughs> And so when you first, you know, in, 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 towards the end of the academy, we go on ride-alongs. So you went on, you, you went on your ride-alongs. And uh, real quick, just kind of explain what the ride-alongs are like and, and, and what, what, where you did yours and, and what that was all about. Okay, so um, from day one in the academy, you're working your butt off for the 17th week. And the 17th week is when you're going to take your use of force and self-defense tests. And you have to pass that in order to earn your badge. So up until that point, you're just a recruit officer, Maurice Landrum. You're not a police officer, recruit officer Landrum. You're just recruit officer. And you have to earn your badge. If doing the self-defense test, if you lost your gun or you failed in any phrase of that, you were DQ. In other words, you were disqualified from the academy. 
that's a big deal. So week 17, just to speed this up, I earned my badge. I passed the self-defense test with no problem. And so my first ride along in week 18 is in Van Nuys Division. So that's Valley Bureau. So that's, that's over the hill, over the 405. So I get there early. And, uh, you know, I'm in my Class A uniform. And for us, Class A is long sleeve shirt, you know, wool shirt and pants. And just, you know, obviously no, no boots because we're still in the academy. So you got on these Valley shoes, um, you know, and just clean shaven. I mean, and you, you're just, you're green. You're a boot. That's what we're called. So I'm sitting in roll call and I got my Phil officer's notebook. And they say, hey, you're going to be assigned to nine. Nine Adam 29 oil, write it down. I write down my train officer's name for that day. I knew enough to go to the, the lineup at the station, a place called the kit room. That's where we get all our equipment. So I checked out our shotgun. Back then we had Ithacus. I checked out two handheld radios that we call Rovers. And uh, we didn't have tasers back then. So I checked that out. Now I'm at the car and I check the back seat of the car, make sure there's nothing in there, debris, and it's all gassed up. So I'm sitting in the passenger seat. So out comes my training officer. This guy's got on probably five hash marks. Each hash mark is is represents five years. So he's got uh, at least 25 years on. So I'm like, oh, man, I'm working with a, a seasoned veteran. <laughs> you know? And I'm thinking, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to see some action tonight. That's what I'm talking about. So we're, we so we're, before we leave the station, you know, these are things that we have been taught in the academy. So I'll go, hey, you know what, sir, I just want to show you I'm still in the academy and you know, I, I don't have a backup weapon. And he kind of looked at me like, eh, me neither. I'm like, oh, that's great. Here's a guy that's been out for 25 years, so I, I feel safe now. Anyway, during the course of the night, uh, our first call we got, we went to the GM plant, and it was a PCP suspect. And obviously, it's the first time I've ever seen pencyclidine, a suspect under the influence of that. And for those people who don't know about that, that's uh, a person under the, the influence of uh, PCP has superhuman strength at times. So we're dealing with a guy that's probably about 140 pounds easy. We got a car, shirts off. He's got that thousand mile stare. And you know, back then I'm, I'm about 165 and I'm, I'm benching, you know, about close to 300 pounds. I'm a pretty strong guy. I went to grab his hand and he just whoop, just straightened it back out. I mean, like, I, I was like, wow, he's real slimy. And we kind of wrestled around with him, but we got him into custody. The unit that was assigned to that particular beat area took the took custody of the suspect. So I was like, okay, I logged that. Hey, you know, uh, assisted with the arrest of a PCB suspect. So our next call we get, it's a burglary call, and uh, you know, it was a residential burglary that had occurred. It had already occurred. So we get there. It's an old lady, and uh, we walk into the house, and my partner's there, and. And he sits down in the chair. So I'm, I'm learning, you know, I'm trying to figure this out. And I'm standing, you know, side of him kind of, you know, antsy. You know, I'm just out and I'm looking around. And he, like, hey, man, we're going to take this report and get out of here. And so he, uh, you know, you know, eight hours on a, with the department, you know, when you're working on, on a daily fill activities report, we call it five hours, five, 525 minutes. So we're sitting there and we're sitting there. And this guy, this is, he act like this is the uh, the burglary of the century, <laughs> and uh, I knew right then and there this our, my training officer was a was road, and people find ones that what's road is retired on active duty. This guy up <laughs> here, and I mean, and he, hey, why don't you go out and see if there's any uh, point of entry? So I'm walking around this lady's house outside, 
there's no, you know, no footprints. There, you know, I'm looking for anything near the window sills, like anything that's been disturbed for latent prints to come out, SID, yeah. and scientific investigation vision. I don't see anything there. There's, I mean, there's like nothing there. And, and he made this thing like it was, it was like the, the burglary caper of the century. So we ended up, um, that, that was my, that was it for that day. We, we went into, had cold seven, which is lunch. And that, that was it for the rest of the day. And I, I was like in disbelief. Meanwhile, my classmates were, went out to other divisions, you know, we came back that Monday and that was a big thing. Cause you know, we're all, you know, it's just like we've been released off the reservation and now we get a chance to talk about our experiences. <clears throat> Some of my classmates were actually at a crime scene and I'm not saying that's beneficial and I'm, and I'm happy about the victims, but they, you know, they got the experience of crime scene or pursuit of stolen vehicle, or they made some arrests. And, hey, Mo, what'd you do? I, I, well, I detained a PCP suspect, and then my partner had the burglary uh, investigation of the decade stuff. You know, we, that, that, was, that was my day. <laughs> so, that, so that was week 18. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, those, uh, we've, all, we've, all, we've all been there. We've all ended up with somebody who uh, was, let's say, less than enthusiastic about about the job, so, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, especially if they've been in a long time and, they, and they're still uh, still out there rolling around, not really with no initiative to promote or anything else like that. And they're just he's just biding his time, man. He's just he's just biding his time. Yeah, and as you you know, and as we progress on the job and we grow on the job, you find out that sometimes these people are burnt out because they you know, it could be divorces or alcoholism that's affecting them or you know, they got uh, in trouble before. And so now they're not, you know, they just gonna go out and do the, the bare minimums, you know, they're just trying to just trying to get through. But this, this, uh, this particular guy was road, he was retired on active duty. And it was, it was and just, you know, the, the thing is, is there are guys out there who spend their whole time in patrol, that they're still, I mean, I, I got some thoughts and names in my head right now, to train me and those guys spent their whole career in patrol and they were out there doing it to the, to the, to the end. They were still hooking and booking <clears throat> out there doing the job. And, and they, they were really would, they hated guys like that under any yeah. circumstance, you know? Oh yeah. Um, so let's, let's just get into the meat of you. You've already graduated from the Academy and you're out in the, out in the streets, early eighties, you know, you're like in narcotics, homicide and gangsters. And that's what, that's what, that's what it was all about. I mean, that was a time when, you know, you, you mentioned PCP. With PCP, rock cocaine, uh, heroin, uh, gang shootings, there, you know, there was rivalries you know, going, you know, back and forth. Uh, you know, even like when you and I were together, you know, if, 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 the, if the Crips got shot up on Friday night, we knew the Bloods were going to get shot up on Saturday night. And, and that's what it was like out there. So when you, you know, when you're young, young P1, P2, and you're out there and, and this stuff is going on, and like you said, you never experienced somebody with PCP. It, it was as eye-opening to most people. Uh, tell us kind of how your thoughts were as you were starting to see things unfold uh, when you first hit the streets. Well, you know, it was interesting. I, I, I went to Harbor Division. That was my first division of assignment for probation. And, um, you know, I had some great training officers because I uh, guys, Harbor Division is one of those places where uh, a lot of the, what we would call old-timers went, but those guys were, experienced guys and they were still workers out there so you learned I, I think for me that was a blessing to go there because i learned the gift the gap and i learned the craft of police work there because these are seasoned veteran guys so they taught you how to write how to talk to people you know how to shuck and jive and, and, and to do your job and 
you know, and to do what needed to be done. So during my time, I remember we were in roll call and we had a detective Vincent, he was working in the narcotics division. And he came up and says, hey, there's this new drug hitting the street. And back then they called it cocaine in rock form, not rock cocaine. It's cocaine in rock form. And so he's explaining all this stuff to us and we're all there. And Phil Officer's notebook open, we're ready for, and he has no pictures of it. We don't know what it looks like. I, I, we're clueless, but it's, but it's cocaine in rock form. So I can remember going out and I'm getting in foot pursuits in the Dana Strand housing projects of gangsters. And these guys are sweating profusely and they're looking at me nervously. And there, there would be, there was times when there'd be like little bitty off right white objects on the ground and I would step on them, didn't know. And I, I'd take a field interview card, interview these guys running for warrants. They'd have warrants, I'd warn them of trespassing because they didn't live there. I'll let them go. Well, one particular night, I get out and I'm in foot pursuit, I foot bail, and this guy's running and I'm, I'm chasing him. And I hit this guy like a linebacker. And he's got his hand in his waistband. I got my gun out on him and I whisper in his ear, you know, hey man, if you don't follow my directions, you're going to go in the dark. So I dig it in his pocket and I pull out this clear cellophane baggie and it's got all these off white objects in it. And I just spontaneously say, man, what is this? Uh, cocaine and rock form, and he goes, "Yeah." And I like, <laughs> I look back like I can't freaking believe this. <laughs> All these times I've been chasing these knuckleheads, and they've had it the whole time. He's eating on the ground in front of them, and I, so this, so after that, and and I wrote this in my book, and I mean it was on like Donkey Kong. I mean now I knew what, I knew what it looked like, and I I just went out. There. I was on a mission then after that, but it was it was just interesting. Uh, of the different things you would, you know, you would come across and you would see, because it, it was a, it was a learning experience for us back then. And it was, it was very, it was, ex people don't realize, but it was extremely dangerous and extremely violent out there. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and you, you, you touched on some things there and, and I want to kind of cover quite a bit here. Um, as you know, you talked about, you know, you worked with the, with these training officers who, who were very seasoned officers and stuff like that and, and taught you a lot. And, you know, a lot of the questions, and, and I'm sure you've got them too, and you said you wrote this um, for, because, you know, you want your family to kind of know what you went through and, and, and civilian friends that asked you about it. A lot of times people would ask me about, um, you know, work, working out there and, and, you know, working with guys of different ethnicities and things like this. And I, I said, you know what? Those guys taught me how to stay alive. Black, mm -hmm. white, Hispanic, you name it. I worked, with, I worked with the finest men and women the earth has ever seen. And, and they taught me how to stay alive. They had my back. Some of them saved my life over the years. Um, and when you have a good training, a training officer or a good, a good partner who's into, to, 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 up on tactics and things like that, you feel confident going out there working the most dangerous people in society, working uh, you know, people that are high on, on PCP or cocaine or gangsters who are carrying weapons and stuff like that and handling these things in some of these areas that most people don't want to go into. And, you know, that confidence comes with the people you're around. And so you, when you went to Harbor and you, and you saw yourself around these kind of people, it probably, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but it probably gave you the confidence to continue to, to thrive for more and, and continue to be able to help the public more and go into these areas that a lot of people didn't want to go into. Yeah, you know, um, my, my mindset every day when I went to work is if this, if this person wanted to do you, how could they do you? In other words, mental awareness and mental alertness keeps you alive in the streets. And so I was always 
always, always thinking tactics, no matter what. I, I knew that at domestic violence uh, disputes, you know, a lot of times you go in and you hook up, you hook up the, the male because he's the aggressor. Well, you better stand by even though the female is the victim because now it kicks into it that, wait a minute, this is the breadwinner. They're taking the breadwinner out of the house, taking them to jail. Who's going to pay the rent? Or who's going to pay the mortgage? Or how are we going to get food on the table? Although her eye is completely closed, you know, and so you have to be very cognizant of that. Or the things that we were just taught in the academy, don't let anybody leave your sights. If you're in a house and somebody says, well, my ID's in the bedroom. You know, that's why we followed you back to the bedroom, make sure that you weren't retrieving a gun because that's happened. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just very, you know, it was just an eye opener every night and, and traffic stops were always dangerous. Just every, every call, because you got to figure people, they don't call the police at their best. Hey, can you come by? We're having a birthday party. Uh, you know, my, my son's back from college. No, we get called when people are unfortunately at their worst and yes. they need us. Yeah. And so we're and, and we're going into uncharted territory all the time, not oftentimes, all the time. And then you got to think about foot pursuits. You know, you're going suspects going over backyard. You're going over backyard. I mean, you're chasing them and stuff. And so you, you know, it's the unknown. Is there Rottweilers back there? Is he trying to set you up and get you ambushed? So th these are just things that go through your head when you're working. Absolutely. So an era of a lot of. Uh, a lot of activity in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, worked during the Olympics, earthquakes, riots, and, and you touched on uh, 39th and Dalton, Proposition F. Uh, th this was a this this was a career that's expand that's uh, spanned some of the most uh, popular thing, not necessarily popular, most noteworthy things that ever happened in the city of Los Angeles. Touch on a little bit about each of those events: the Olympics, the earthquake, the riots. And 39th and Dalton. Okay, when I when we first came on the job, obviously in 1984, we had the 1984 Olympics, and that was great for the city of Los Angeles. That was great for for me and my career, and I'm sure all the other Los Angeles police officers. Uh, we we had an opportunity to work the Olympics. The Olympics were there, and we had a good time with that. Towards the end, there was a a, a officer from Metropolitan Division that uh, that wanted to be a hero, mm -hmm. and he he remains nameless. But uh, we, uh, this thing was well thought out. You know, uh, I, I have to give it to the planning, the planning committee for the Los Angeles Police Department and the other uh, social, social teams. And they, it, it, it really went off without a hitch. And then all of a sudden, there's a bomb that's found in the luggage of a Turkish team at the airport. And it's by an officer, a metropolitan officer, that just happens to be guarding that particular area there. And so initially, this guy's a hero. He averted a, a tragedy, a terrorist act, and he's being held as a hero. So then as uh, Robert Homicide Division and the other powers of be started to interview this guy, his story started changing. Mm -hmm. And it changed, and it changed some more. And then it comes to find out that it, the bomb was a fake bomb. He purchased it. And uh, that, that led to charges for him and a dismissal from the department because he, he tarnished the badge, and, and rightfully so. You know, and, and so I, that, was, that was the first thing. And then uh, we talked about uh, 39th and Dalton. That was, I was at 39th and Dalton. And, uh, By that I mean, time you were a P3? I was a P3. So I, had, I probably want to back up and we'll talk about our time. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, I met you when I went to Pacific Division. So after Harbor, 
division. I went out to Pacific Division, which is uh, everybody, most people call it Venice, Venice Beach Division because the beach is there. And I remember first getting there, we had Captain Mills. Remember him? Mm -hmm. So we had Captain Mills, and uh, they hadn't had a, a special problems unit formed in a long, long time. And I remember uh, they were going to start this this uh, unit, and then there was a unit called FB uh, 14 FB 72, which was a prostitution enforcement detail. And yeah. that's where I met Swoop. <laughs> I remember uh, working with you, and I remember we uh, we got together, and you know, we were talking, and I you know I kind of told you where I had my backup. You told me you had your backup, and 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 I just knew we were you were the senior guy there, because I mean, golly, man, you know. 35 people in front of me. So I'm, I'm like nervous. I got, I got a seasoned vet here I'm working with. <laughs> so anyway, I remember uh, uh, things we shared in common. I mean, we both had, we had families. Uh, we worked out a lot religiously and stuff, and we were big on officer safety. And, and, we, and we, we loved report writing. I mean, yes. we used to write the Afro mention <laughs> time. I mean, and, and, I mean, and like you said, we always, you know, we told the truth, but we would just, we, we would use these, you know, these $20 words for reports. I remember that. Anyway, I remember working with you and we, we go up uh, to Imperial Highway and we're working and we stop people. And I had never seen a transvestite site in my life. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> so you did. You had been working at detail for a while. And I remember we stopped this female and or this person say, what's your name? And they said, Roxanne. And you like, hey, what's your name? Ralph. And I remember that, man. I was like, whoa. You know, that messed up my whole life, man. Then I start... If I was going to talk to a female, I had to. She had to go get a medical exam. No, I'm just kidding. But I mean, I remember that. We we just you and I had a great time. And then I remember we were working. We were so they formed a spew unit. And remember, we had sergeant. We we had two sergeants there. We we had Sergeant Johnson, and then we had Sergeant uh, Ken Hillman. So I remember uh, when they, when we first when they first established. Were you there when Peterman was there? No, I'm not. No, I wasn't there with Peterman. So, but I remember when they first formed the, the SPEW unit again, Mill said, hey, we're going to start this up again. And we, all, we were all selected, and he, and he selected go-getters. There, there was nobody working that SPEW unit. We had Gordy. We had guys, uh, Dave Wentworth. Every, everybody in there were hookers and bookers. Everybody took care of business. They were dialed in tight. We were tactically sound. Our uniforms were sharp. I remember that. And he hand-selected us. Yeah. So I remember our, our first deployment period, Remember, we went to Wilshire because they were having a robbery problem. And I know people listening to this won't believe this, but Wilshire Division was having a bank robbery a day. I remember that because that's why they called us over the work. So you and I are working together. And we sat in this long roll call. I don't know if you remember. The roll call was about two hours. Remember, we're sitting in there and hey, we're going to do this. And it was Captain Washington and Captain Bivens. Hey, we got this, this, this. And we had a little sergeant named Desmond. Remember that? Yes. Knucklehead. Anyway. So we had all this stuff going, and so we, you and I are clear. We're driving down, uh, we're, we're driving down Western, and we don't know the boundaries. We're not really sure where uh, Wilshire Division ends and Southwest Division, which is South Bureau, begins. So it's I remember the city of Los Angeles. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's right. The badge says City of Los Angeles, police officer. So I remember we were rolling, and uh, we're like Johnny on the spot. We get flagged down at Adams and Western. People, hey, this guy's. He's just doing this robbery. So we, we look it up, and we see this guy running out at the, from the Chevron station. And we're like, Harkins, that's a clue. <laughs> so the guy looks at us, takes off running. He runs uh, southbound, then he runs, he runs eastbound into this uh, parking lot. And the parking lot had all this Constantine wire. So I was like looking at you, and we're looking at each other like, dude, 
Where's he going? Because he he's go, he's going to catch. So yeah, I remember he, he started running back at us, and you know, and, and the use of force occurred because he failed to listen to our verbal commands and and, and became a little aggressive. And I remember hitting him with a baton in the shin area, and we hooked him up. Yeah. Well, that same day, uh, Hillman was at a carnival at a Catholic church. You got to remember this. So we drive over there to tell him we had a use of force. And what are the chances he pulls the guy's pants leg up and the guy's bleeding out of the shin and there's a hole in the shin. And the first thing uh, Sergeant Hillman looks at, he says, Mo, did you shoot him? I said, sir, I didn't shoot him. I swear. The guy had a pre-existing, I just happened to hit him on a pre-existing hole where he had a, probably had a, a bullet wound before. Yeah. But I remember that. And we just, I mean, you and I, we just, we worked together good and we just, that that whole deployment period there, we were, all we were doing is hooking people up, but it, well, robbery slowed down. So then we started, it, was, it got slow. So we started doing with dealing with quality of life issues like people drinking in public and, and different things. Well, it was interesting. You know, you, you, you touch on something here because people, people, we hear a lot of talk now about policing and, and I hear the things that people say need to be done and, and here's why and what police need to stop doing. You know, quality of life issues, it improved the community. And people say, well, why, why, are you, why, are, why are you guys enforcing things like drinking in public or urinating in public or loitering and stuff like that? Because those are the things that lead to other things. And when we were in, in, you know, in, in some of the things that people talk about now that need to be done, we, we were doing back in the 80s. We, were, we had the basic car plan. We, the reason we had a basic car plan is because you knew who belonged in your area at, at a time, and especially when you're working like morning watch and stuff like that. Right. So, <clears throat> you know, the quality of life issues, um, those, when, when people realize that they just can't hang out and, 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 drink in public or loiter in places and stuff like that. Because when you do that, it, it make it affects the people that don't feel like they can walk down the street. Their kids can't walk down the street, you know, and, and it's unsafe. And so you, you mentioned that we, we, we were working those quality of life issues, but that's one of the reasons that a lot of the other stuff went down. That's why the, the, the street, the street drug dealing in certain areas would go down. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, we put all that enforcement in the bank robberies and the bank robberies went down. And so, in an era when all this stuff was going on hot and heavy, and I, and I know that a lot of that stuff is still going on, I think that the, the tactics that were being used were showing the, the, a decrease in a lot of those part one crimes. Oh, definitely. And then for, and for your, your, your listeners, part one crimes are the things like robberies, burglaries, homicides, assaults, rapes. Yeah, we were, we were out there and we were taking care of business. And uh, just like you said, Swoop, it, it's called the, the broken window concept. Yep. You know, if there's a window busted in a house and it's abandoned and all the other windows aren't broken, I can guarantee you within before the end of the week, all those windows are going to be busted out. Because if you don't take care of that one window and repair it, everybody else will say, hey, this is abandoned property and we're just going to vandalize it. And that's what we did. We were, we were, we were, we were surgeons without medical degrees because we did surgical strikes on places. I mean, we took care of business. We, I mean, our or, you know, we, hey, you know, we got a group hanging out here, let's hit, and we would hit it, and then you come back the next day, and the next day, and then they'd be, oh, and, and it would give them the illusion that the police are going to be here every day, man, let's find a new spot to hang out at, and it, would, and it worked, they would move on, or they would, you know, or go in your backyard, or drink in your house, man, you know, don't drink out here in public. 
you know, you touched you touched on it when you talk about the broken window concept, and 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 then you and you mentioned something in your book that kind of I'm gonna put this together. One of the things with the broken window concept was also talked about, you know, with, with the graffiti when the, you know, the, the, they had a they had a I think they had a unit or somebody could call up if, if the if the place got graffitied, you know, business owner or homeowner could call up and then somebody would come out and paint over that graffiti, and you you talked about in your book about having the expertise to read and understand that graffiti as, as, a, as an officer. Talk about how that benefits, benefits an officer understanding what the graffiti, what the graffiti means. Yeah, so uh, graffiti is uh, a language all to its own. And 99% uh, of the time, it's used by gangsters. I mean, there's graffiti artists and all that stuff, but back in our era, graffiti 99% of the time was used by gangsters. And that was their way to mark their territory or let others know that hey we're at war with these individuals or we want to we want to kill this particular individual or we want to go after this particular organization so uh it's very important during that era and even now to pay attention to graffiti and what it says on the wall because that's the difference between life and death for me by this time i was assigned the southwest division and i was a pro-aggressive police officer meaning that I went out and I arrested gangsters. That, and it's interesting between back then in 83 and what's going on now. In 83, the citizenry loved us because there was a game problem and it was a violent game problem. And we went in there to make the, make the community safe for the elderly, the women, children, and the families. That was our job and that's what we did. So you didn't you would never see me just pull over a car with uh, a mother, father, and a son in there or grandfather. I, I could care less about that back in the day. And I said this to my if you were a gangster and you didn't have a front license plate or if it was illegal for you to breathe and you were a gangster, I was pulling you over. And if you didn't have a driver's license or you had some defect with your car and I had, I had the uh, legal authority to impound your car, I did that. And your, some of your viewers might say, well, that's kind of cold-blooded. No, because back then during our era, that stopped the drive-by shooting. And we know it did. Because these guys were rolling out. That was going to be a drive-by shooting that night. They rolling deep. And, you know, and a lot of times we stopped cars like that. You know, we would, we, would recover, we would recover a gun. Or you would recover ammo. And then later on when you did the inventory search, down at the yard you find it was hit. The gun was hit in the vent. But these guys were out. They, they weren't out like, hey, we're going to the movies. No, 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 no. They're, they were out because they were going hunting. Yeah. And so I remember my particular case, to kind of wrap this up for this particular thing, that I remember there, there was a KFC at King Boulevard Lamert near or Sutro. I'm driving down the street one day, and I see uh, Snoovers crossed out, Landrum, which I felt proud, crossed out with a K, uh, and then LAPD crossed out with a K. So when you're crossed out, that means they want to kill you. So it was – and – uh, obviously, this particular uh, clown, he, he was a Crip gang member. I won't, I won't give him notoriety from what gang, but he was a Crip gang member. And uh, you can tell because Crips would always put uh, CK, right, it, it, you know, or, or, or BK. They wouldn't put CK because CK would be, or, you know, be stands for Crip killer. So they put BK or something. But he was, he was, he was a, a Crip gang member. And I remember uh, the, the average officer, We'll see something like that, and they were, hey, man, I'm going to stay out of this area, man, because they want to kill me or something like that. For me, that was an invitation. 
I was like, oh, oh, thank God. <laughs> These guys, they, they want to, they, they're calling for attention. And I remember driving around, driving around, and every, every single minute that I had available time for director patrol was spent in that area. And then luckily for me, I was able to come across this guy one night in an alley. It was a beautiful thing. Like 7th Avenue, six, between 6th and 7th Avenue off of Vernon. And we just had a come to Jesus talk, and we talked, and kumbaya. His mother called the station, you know, and, uh, you know, his, his, I, I, will, I will tell you his last name was Ferguson. And uh, Mr. Ferguson never did anything like that again. I, it just, he, he, he just had a, a change of heart, and that was, that was just so good to see. You, uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, you, 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 real quick, listen to Swoop Road on Talk Show Radio Network. We're talking to Maurice Landrum, author of Gangsters, Narcotics, Homicide, Protecting the Thin Blue Line. Um, you work in Southwest, and that's, let's talk about 39th and Dalton. Uh, it, it was, one, it was a, a, it, we made the press. Um, the, the information that was out there, I tell so many people so many times, um, they say, oh, well, you know, this was in the paper. And I'm like, yeah, but I was standing there, and, and I read in the paper, other than the location, <laughs> everything else there is all messed up. Uh, right. But uh, tell us a little bit about because my 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 knowledge of 39th and Dalton was was the the, the stories that were coming out in the paper and the scuttlebutt around around the department. You were there. Uh, you were part of it. T uh, touch on that a little bit. Okay. Well, first off, for your viewers, 39th and Dalton is located in uh, Southwest Division, which is. Uh, well, now it's called South Los Angeles. Back then, everything in the South was called South Central Los Angeles. Anyway, well, I was a I was a police officer three, which is a training officer then, and I was working a specialized unit. I was working a special problems unit at Southwest. I had just uh, gotten uh, well. I had a brand new uh, P1, so that's a an officer that's just graduated from the academy that that graduates that was assigned to me because they had to be able to justify having a, a a training officer in a specialized unit, you know, so they attached a, a P1 with me. Anyway, uh, uh, my P1's name was Dennis Oliver, and he's a Spanish speaker, squared away kid. So our first week we're working and uh, there's a house at 3905 Dalton and it's uh, and a Hispanic family. They just purchased that home brand new for them. So they're new homeowners there. Well, 3903, 3903 and a half, 3907, 3907 and a half were gang locations for a, uh, a well-known violent narcotic selling shooting crip gang. And I won't give them notoriety, but they, they had a crip gang there. And so the new homeowner decided, hey, you know what? I want to, it's dark around here. So I want to put some floodlights in. So he put some floodlights in so it could kind of shine on at night because the Overhead mercury vapor street lights were kind of dim and they were few and far between. He also trimmed back the palms on his trees out front. So he gets approached by this particular gang. They go, hey man, don't trim back those trees any further because that's where we hide our dope at from LAPD and we don't want them to, to confiscate it or see it. So he kind of stopped that night. Then he turns his lights on. He gets approached the next day. Hey man, don't turn those lights on that night because it illuminates us. And when LAPD drives by, then they see us. So the next night he does it again, they shoot his house up. You know, his family's in there, they shoot it up. 
So uh, there was a, a detective trainee named Carl Sims and his partner, Bob Clark. They go out and they start doing their little investigation there. And so they, Carl is looking at everything and says, hey, you know, these guys are selling dope here and we need a way to, to do, get search warrants to get into these houses. So the victims were Spanish speakers. My, my probation was a Spanish speaker and there was another probationary officer named Robert Hernandez. So they had uh, my probationary officer and Robert Hernandez go undercover into the victim's house every day. And what they did, they did set up like an observation post. So they started recording names and times and descriptions of people and drug transactions going out of both of these, all four of these locations intermittently. So they had enough information. So during that time, um, we had a detective uh, unrelated to that that was out one morning doing subpoena service, service subpoenas, and he was off of Western. And there was a, uh, a gang member there when he was serving subpoena, hopped over a fence with a sawed off shotgun. And this detective, uh, there was an officer involved shooting occurred. And the, uh, the suspect, you know, ended up taking a dirt nap. He was killed. So there was a big uproar about that. It was, uh, you know, we're not happy about that when we get involved in shootings, but it was a good shooting. This guy was a bandit. So word on the streets, this particular street gang wanted to kill the Los Angeles police officer. So we had that going, the same gang. So we get a, a, a captain of police, which is unprecedented. And he calls a meeting and he wants us to all go up to the meeting. That never happened. So we are speaking it. Before that, we had been serving dozens and dozens of search warrants on our own. We, you know, we, we were just good that way. You know, we did warrants and we were doing things. So he has a meeting with us and he tells uh, myself, and I have about five, well, I do, not about, I had five years on the job at that time. And so the other officers than me had less time on the job. They had about, about three years, some maybe four, but you know, they were very mature officers. And he tells us that, uh, we we want to we want to teach this gang a lesson. We want to take back the streets, and we want you to make the places uninhabitable. Then he goes on to talk about shootings. And he, yeah, if you were to become involved in a officer involved shooting based on a gang involvement, robbery homicide division wouldn't look at it or view it uh, with much scrutiny because of gang involvement. So I remember we we kind of all looking around, and everybody you know, there's six or eight of us in there. We're kind of flabbergasted, like. I can't believe this is the captain of police talking to us like this. Because in the academy, you know, we're taught the shooting policy. It's quite clear. It's, black <laughs> it's, and white, it's absolutely clear. Yeah, it's a uh, background, age, last resort, knowledge, a serious crime, and idle, immediate defense of life shooting. Right? And I mean, that, that's just No it. more, no less. There's, 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 nothing, there's no gray areas in there. No. So I remember going out to the, the gas pumps, and I called a quick meeting. And I said these exact things. I go, hey, man, don't believe that shit. I go, we're going to do search warrants the way that we've always done them. I says, I didn't come on this job and hire on this job to destroy people's property. I didn't, I didn't come on for that. What I came on for is to make the community safe and take bad guys to jail. That's what I came on for. I says, as far as you getting, getting involved in a shooting, I told them the same thing. You know, the academy taught us the shooting policy and, and what I just told you, you know, box and idle. And I says, you know, I says, and that's, I says, no one can tell you when to squeeze off around. I can't tell you that, the captain can't tell you that, that's your own conscious decision and you wanna make sure if, if that comes to that, that it's righteous. But anyway, we, uh, we find out that they, 
you know, they decided that August 1st was going to be the date to serve this warrant, 1988. So Carl determines that, hey, you know, and he was right that, hey, we've, we've got four locations we're going to be hitting, and HPU officers is not enough to do that. So he, he went to the captain and the powers to be, and they decided that they're going to, uh, they're going to get a hold of the, uh, the gang task force. And back then it was called Operation Hammer. That was the, the baby of Deputy Chief Rathburn and Commander Matthew Hunt. So they decided, they, so what we end up getting is like 70 officers for four locations. It's crazy. <laughs> and we had nighttime service endorsement. So what that means to your, your listeners is we could serve our warrant of any, any time of the day or night, whenever we thought that it was opportune time because of the danger of the warrant. So, you know, normally warrants are served from seven in the morning to 10 at night unless you get a radio call and you knock on the door, you got a reason to be in there. So this was a nighttime endorsement, which means we can serve at any time. So we're kind of sitting in the station, we're kind of waiting and finally we, we hit the place. And uh, you know, we do knock and notice, you know, Los Angeles Police Department, search warrant, demand entry. And it's a, it's a high risk entry search warrant because there's dope involved. That's what we're after, dope and gangsters. And when we hit our place, our guy who we're looking for, Hildebrandt is not at the location. The sister's there. She's in a tub. We have a female with us, thank God. And I stayed downstairs, and they had her get out of the tub. The female officer escorted her downstairs, and so we were there. In the meantime, my my probationary officer is next door in the undercover capacity. So I remember getting a shotgun to him and telling him, "Hey, you know, we'll we'll be back later. Just stay here, stay down." So we go to this, we drive uh, our load our guys up in the van, and we drive to the station. I was in the in the van and. I remember uh, one thing that, that occurred that I thought was funny, but apparently the department didn't, is when we got him to the station and got him out of the car, we made him whistle the Andy Griffin tune. I thought that was real cool. Guys going to jail whistling the Andy Griffin tune. The department didn't. Anyway, so that, that was the end of my uh, interaction with these gangsters that particular night. And by the way, the guy we were looking for, Hildebrandt, I saw him over in the crowd. He wasn't in the apartment. And so I brought him over. What we had that night was a lack of communication. So none of us spoke to Carl Sims, who was going to actually Arthur and write the arrest report. So when he saw later on, when he saw Hildebrand Flowers in custody, he assumed that we got him in the apartment, which we didn't. We got him standing on the street. Anyway, so we go back, and I'm with my uh, my partners, Todd Cleese, and another officer who remained nameless. And we were there, and we're sitting there, and uh, we're in plain clothes. We're in a blue Ford Taurus, and we're our primary function is just to watch 3905, make sure there's no retaliation there, the victims, and plus I have my my uh, my probationary officers inside. And so we see couches being cut up, and it ain't police officers because we've already cleared the location. And I remember getting on the air and telling our sergeant, "Hey, sir, I go, we got people in the front yard at 3903, and they're cutting up couches and." Hey, Mo, just that's fine, but just your job is just to monitor and make sure that, you know, that you get, you know, Dennis out and uh, Robert Hernandez. Yes, sir. So we get them out. We go home that night, you know, and next morning I'm watching midday news on KCOP Channel 13 here in California. And I see Deputy Chief Rathburn with a city podium in the front yard of 3907 Dalton. I'm like, what the fudge is going on? And he's like sitting there like, obviously this misconduct occurred here and we're going to get to the bottom of this. And behind him 
is uh, is uh, our spineless captain, Elfmont. And then there's also standing to his side, there's Commander Matthew Hunt. And they're kind of standing there and we're looking at this thing. So I come in that day to, you know, to go to work, all prepared, got a brand new fresh uniform. I thought we had just like a great night the night before. Mo, you need to go over to Bureau, which is South Bureau, you need to be interviewed. So we get over there and I'm over there and it's like an unemployment line, man. There's probably about 50 officers over there and we, we got a guy named Bob Cavanaugh, Robert Cavanaugh. That's going to be our employee representative. And so Eternal Affairs Group is there and they're going to interview us about this search for They want to know what was said, you know, the, you know, basically the who, what, when, where, why, and how kind of thing. So we were sitting there and we're getting interviewed and then all of a sudden <laughs> they, uh, they start showing pictures and I got to tell you, my mouth dropped open because I never, and I'm not proud to say this, I've never seen destruction like that. I was like flabbergasted. And it wasn't from our location, it was from these other locations where the game task force guys were. You know, there was some damage in our house. I remember the toilet broke at our location and it was it was a, an officer named Limber. He let our sergeant know about it. So our sergeant documented that. He, it was inadvertently broken and we knew about that. But it was like, for instance, at the other locations, one of the locations was an upstairs location and there's supposed to be a, a wooden landing with stairs in the back. That was not down. Wow. Then there was a shed in the backyard that was flattened. Then there was um, inside those homes, because they were showing us pictures, there was uh, holes in the, in the drywall. And, you know, to a certain degree, in reality, certain places you could, you could articulate that because suspects do hide dope in walls. But this was to the extremes. And then the things that we couldn't justify there was, uh, there was red paint transfer from a red ram to a picture tube of a television. You can't justify that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so that, right then and there, we were upset. And then they had, uh, in one of the locations, it said Sand Dog LAPD rules. You know, like, like a bunch of gangsters. So I remember one of the things they had us do, they had us stand up and they had us write Sand Dog because they were looking for handwriting ex exemplars to compare. And then LAPD rules, and we're like, who, who would do that? And so there was a guy in the unit, and we, not in our unit, but there was a guy in the thing, so we figured out it was him. But like, you know, we were, at that point, he and what had occurred, we were no better than the gangsters. No. You know, and I mean, and so that was a very infamous time, and that was, that was a, that was, that was just bad for us as, as a department, that was bad for, for us that was involved because that gave us a stigma for a while and stuff, you know, you know, we ended up, I, I ended up taking, and I don't mind telling you, I, I took 10 days uh, suspension. I took five days because I thought it was okay to have gangsters whistle the Andy Griffin tune. I thought that was outstanding. I, and to this day, I still think that was outstanding. And that's all I did with that. So I got five days for that. And then I got another five days because Don Hudson, who was on the second door says that, well, he heard me, but uh, so they thought that I didn't wait a reasonable time to take the door. And to this day, that I still, for that, I think that was, I did the right thing because it's a dope search warrant, high entry crisis search warrant. We know suspects flush dope down toilets. But anyway, so I, I took, so I ended up taking 10 days for that. And then back then, I got five years on a job, like you said. Yeah. I have a daughter. And I and everybody was saying, "Hey, man, if you take a uh, Chief Gates is offering you ten everybody ten days. If you don't take this and you go to Board of Rights, you can be fired." Well, we all know 
that the LAPD Board of Rights is what we all call the kangaroo court. So you can go in there, man, and all of a sudden, now you're fired. You're out of a job. And I'm thinking, man, I got five years in. This is what I want to do for a living. So I just, you know, I took my medicine, you know, and, and marched on and something. But I, as I look back in retrospect, I wish I would have taken the border rights because the other people that were with me took border rights and got found not guilty. But you know what? It matured me. Yeah. Everything's a learning experience. And, and, and you know, and like I said at the beginning, you, 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 you listed all the good, the bad, the ugly. And you know that was one of the, <clears throat> was one of those uh, events in, in LAPD history that, uh, like you said, left a left a bad mark on the department for a long time. Yeah. Um, and but uh, thanks for explaining that to us. And we really appreciate that. And I, and I know you you got to you probably run out of time here. I just want to touch on a couple other things real quick, and then we'll, sure. we'll go ahead and wrap this up. You got you got you got enough time for that? I, I have plenty of time. Okay, Mo. <clears throat> um. We're here with Mo Landrum, Maurice Landrum, author of Gangsters, Narcotics, Homicides, Protecting the Thin Blue Line. Before we go any further, Mo, let's just let people know how do they, how, we're going to touch on this again at the end, but how can people get your book as a matter of fact? Okay, there's a couple of ways that you can get my book. One of them is through uh, a website called bookbaby.com. That's, uh, that's my uh, publisher. You can also get it at Barnes and Nobles. You can also get the book at Amazon Books. You can also get the book at uh, Apple Books, iBooks. And um, I, I have uh, several books here with me myself. If you want an autographed copy, you can contact me through the Gmail, and I'll tell you, how, you know, what it costs and how to, get that, how to get a book sent out to you. So I've been, I've been busy every day. So it's, it's, uh, the e-books the e are released right now. You can, get them, you can get an e-book right now. You can also get a paperback copy through Book Baby because they're my publisher. With regards to uh, uh, Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, the book the book itself won't be available and released to them until September eighth. But I have books now, and Book Baby, my publisher has books now. So I think Book Baby does that to try to get everybody to drive towards them. But I have books now. But after after uh, September eighth. There'll be it'll be released everywhere. And then I saw where it's been released in Canada, and I got a a big a big show in there. People are buying the book there. It's, it's kind of cool. That's awesome, man. You know, <clears throat> this this thirty ninth and Dalton lead into this uh, based on what you're saying. Leadership. You know, uh, no matter what industry you're in, leadership is important. Uh, I think it's extremely important in law enforcement. Um, You've worked with some great leaders. It sounds like you worked with some bad leaders. Um, you, you, you eventually became a supervisor yourself and leader of men and women in this department. How important is leadership and what, what, should, what should a person possess to be a good leader? Well, there's a couple things that you, as a, first of all, you need to have integrity. That's the, that's the main thing. You need to have integrity and honesty and you need to have interpersonal skills. And you also need to have a, a, you know, a reverence for the law, respect for people, you know, and you just, those are things that are very important as a leader because people are looking to you for leadership and they're looking to you for direction, guidance, and you have to be that, stand in that gap and you need to be the one that tells them, here, this is what needs to be done. This is the mission and this is how we get it done and without stepping out of bounds and stuff. And then you have to hold your, your folks accountable. So if somebody steps out of line, 
you know, you have to jam them. You can't be, well, okay, that's so-and-so, and he has a high recap. We'll let that go. No, you got to jam them. Hey, dude, that's unsatisfactory. What are you, felony stupid? We don't do it like that. Yeah. And, and I think right now in today's police work, what's going on around the nation and LAPD, sheriffs, and, I mean, throughout the nation, is there is a void in good leadership. You'll see a lot of these things where there's no supervisor on scene, and so these guys are just making it up as they go. And then you see these gross miscarriages of justice, and then it paints a broad brush on all law enforcement, and all law enforcement's not like that. You know, uh, from the 80s to now, LAPs had a lot of different chiefs. And, um, you know, everybody has their favorites. I know who mine was. Um, but we see, you know, you mentioned, I mean, you, there's no, I mean, I'm not giving up something, but there's somebody in the book that you mentioned that you worked for for a period of time who eventually became the chief. Um, and you kind of spotted, spotted some flaws in him long before he became the chief. <clears throat> we, I think a lot of, a lot of these departments and, and we talked about, uh, we were going to talk about proposition F a lot of these departments, because of the way the chief is selected, the chief is no longer beholden to, in my opinion, no longer beholden to the men and women that, that he, that work under him. Right. Under, as well as they're very not, they're really not beholden to the citizens who are relying on them. They're beholden to the mayor or the city council that hired them. Um, you know, your thoughts on that. Okay, well, that, that is, that's an excellent point, Swoop. So basically, uh, after, the, after the Rodney King incident and the trial, subsequent trial, when, when uh, Stacey Kuhn, Powell, Borsinio, and the other officer were found not guilty initially in Simi Valley, uh, Mayor Tom Bradley at the time had a news conference, and he goes, you know, you citizens should, Angelino should be upset. It's a miscarriage of justice. And you know, so he said, you should uh, protest. Well, those protests led to rioting. And during that time, I was working homicide. I remember it vividly. Anyway, it, it led to rioting, and it tore the city down, and it, and it was bad. And so he came back up, and he says, hey, you know what? I think that the mayor and the police chief should have term limits. Prior to that, Chief Darrell Gates was Teflon. You know, he, he, was, he was put in that position, and... City council couldn't remove them. Mayor couldn't remove them. The uh, board of police commissioners couldn't couldn't remove them. So it, it, it was very antagonistic during during that time when I came on between him and uh, and Mayor Tom Bradley. Anyway, they were able to get a ballot measure on the ballot, and it was called uh, Charter Amendment F, as in Frank. And what that did is that gave. Uh, uh, the mayor and the police chief, two five-year terms in their current position, and that was it, they were, they were termed out. And so it was agreed upon when that, when that passed that Gates would step down. So when he stepped down, and when that, that uh, Charter Amendment F passed, at that point, the Los Angeles Police Department left from being an independent entity to a political machine. And you hit the nail right on the head, because when you dig into Charter Amendment F, when you look into it, the mayor of Los Angeles is responsible for hiring the board of police commissioners. The board of police commissioners are responsible for evaluating and hiring the chief of police for Los Angeles. So if the mayor doesn't like something about 
the police chief or there's a flaw there or he wants something done a certain way, he talks to the police commission and thereby they, they kind of yank the chains of the chief of police. And so it's, it's become a political thing. And, and like right now with the current mayor in, in Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, he's like a contortionist. He's, he's a politician and he's just been any kind of way when he hears something. And if you really follow it, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you'll see that, you know, one day he's, uh, we're going to defund the police because these groups want the police to fund. So he thinks that's very cool. We know in reality that that's going to be disastrous. I mean, we know that for a fact, but anyway, so he's doing that. And then, so he thinks, okay, I appease these people. And then uh, two weeks ago, they're protesting at his house about rent control. And guess who shows up to keep the peace? I mean, can you, you probably want to try to guess, Swoop. Yeah, about 150 Los Angeles police officers, and they were all on, on the, the Getty House, which is the official mayor's residence. Yeah. They were all on this property and stuff. And he was the, the mayor because he's a contortionist. He was downtown at City Hall. And this is, you can't make this up. He was taking a knee with other protesters on the City Hall steps while they were getting ready to overrun his house about some other issues. So you, you can't you can't appease all these different groups. You know, you can only do the right thing. And I really don't think that we really heard from the, the true citizenry of Los Angeles. These are a lot of people who have a bone to pick with the police department. Is LAPD perfect? No. Uh, have we have we fallen on our sword sometime? Yes, we have. Are there social issues out there? Yes. Do we have some officers that probably shouldn't be officers? Yes, as as with all agencies, you know, you you name an agency right now, and I and I guarantee you, there's something either brewing right now or something that has occurred. Because yeah. police officers are selected from the human race, and I should I tell people that They're, we're not bred it like you know like uh, we're in some kind of movie and okay like RoboCop, we're 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 taken from the human race. It's, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I, I kind of try to see what's going on throughout the, throughout the U.S. And I have to admit that uh, one, one chief that I, I, I admittedly, when I, when I kind of knew the guy, I didn't know, I didn't have really one way or another opinion of him. Uh, but I'm really impressed with the way he's running his department is, is James Craig, a former LAPD. Oh, yeah. Personnel, but he he's he's doing a great job over there. I like I like what he has to say when he when he's giving his uh, press conferences, uh, and he's a leader. He's he's being a leader uh, there, uh, and I'm I'm seeing a lot of these other chiefs. I, 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 the, the 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 chief in Seattle, she she just resigned, but she showed she showed leadership. She says, you know, this this is not what I signed on for. This is not how we you know how we police a city. Um, I loved what I've done here, but obviously you guys are going in different directions. And so she, she had the intestinal fortitude to say, you know, this is wrong. You're not going to let me uh, be, a, be the, an effective leader. I'm leaving. I see a lot of these other chiefs, local chiefs, uh, they're bending in the wind. Whatever the mayor, whatever the mayor says they do. And even as, as anybody who's worked the field in, in any amount of time, knows that some of the things that they're asking them to do are just wrong. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not safe tactically. It's not, it's not safe for the, for the citizens. Uh, but they're going along with it. 
and I, I have no respect for, for those people, and, and they should not be in a leadership capacity. That is, that is uh, 100% on point. Uh, we're seeing a, a major void in leadership, and people are – the current chief of Los Angeles, Mike Moore, useless. You know, uh, go, go away. Go, you know, retire and go away. Yeah. Because he's doing everything in the counter opposite and stuff. So, you know, officers at LAPD right now, they, they have a saying. It's called FIDO. Fudge it, drive on. So you know, they're seeing stuff happen, but it's like, let's just handle calls for service. Because if we get involved in something here, we don't have any backing. Chief's not going to back us, you know, or, or the commanders aren't going to back us, or certain, you know, captains or lieutenants. They're just, you know, why, hey, why, why did you stop and get involved in that shooting? That guy had a gun and stuff. And even though he has a long rap sheet, why did you do that? Yeah. You, you can, you, you, and it's almost getting to the point now where they're trying to say on certain things, like pursuits and stuff, oh, well, we, we identify the guy. We know where he lives at, so call the pursuit. <laughs> they're doing stuff like that now. I, I, I watched one on TV recently. You know, <clears throat> trying to kind of speed this up just a little bit, but, uh, it, you know, you touched on a thing there, you know, uh, in the and, I, and, I, and I'm sure this didn't stop after the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. I'm sure it went on until recently. Um, observation arrests were a big thing. When you're out, you know, you know, calls for service, you're there after the fact. You're there after the fact, after somebody's called, after the crime has occurred, occasionally when it's in progress. But observation arrests, and you know, you, you're talking about being out there hooking and booking, out there doing the, doing the deal, uh, and, and people who are, are effective are making a lot, in my opinion, are making a lot of observation arrests because you're, you're out there, you're seeing things, you're, you're, you're using your knowledge, uh, your expertise to determine what's going on. And, and a lot of times guys drive by things because they don't, they don't, they don't understand what it is. Uh, and, 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 you know, having the, the skills to make good observation arrests, to me, decreases crime and makes more places more inhabitable for the citizens. Well, it, yeah, it, it was always our job to reduce the fear and incidents of crime. That was our job. And, um, I had a phenomenal career. You know, I, I made, we made, and when I was working with you two, we made some phenomenal arrests, observation arrests. And there was things that people were, well, man, how'd you, how'd you know that, man? How'd you, how'd you guys come up on this? It's just paying attention, paying attention to stuff and just, you know, and working. And we, we came up with good arrests. Sometimes you stop a guy and hook him up. You didn't even know the guy's wanted for murder or something. I mean, it was just, we just had instinct back then. And we did we did good police work. It was solid. We always told the truth. I mean, it was just it was that was just what we did. I mean, I had fun. And that's what it was all about. <laughs> Jamal, I could talk to you for hours. I I, re I really could. Uh, um, I'm going to mention two names for you, and then uh, you don't have to delve into them. I want people to buy the book and and and, and take note of these. Uh, I found a story about Michelle Helford, uh, heartbreaking. Uh, <laughs> I found the term officer shameless hilarious. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but when you, when you explained it, I understand it. Um, but it's, we, we tried to cover a lot. We tried to cover a lot that's in the book and people get an idea of who you are and where you're coming from. But was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? We still have plenty of time to talk about it. Uh, so let me know. Well, you know, uh, you kind of mentioned some things. When I went to homicide, uh, 
my, I've seen, like I said, I've been at numerous crime scenes. Um, you know, I had not, you know, unfortunately, and but now I'm working homicide. So it's my, my first murder actually occurred the last day of the riots, the 1992 riots. And it was a, a victim named Michelle Helford, 15 year old that was brutally raped and murdered by three gang members. And I remember uh, we, it was off of 98th Street in Broadway. So I remember we went out there, crime scene set up, victims laying in the alley, partially nude. Uh, we're kind of looking around and there's a crowd around because obviously they got there before we did. There's a house right off the alley. I mean, right where she died and was shot and killed. We door knocked that and they said, hey, you know what? We heard, we heard gunshots between 1 and 6 a.m. But he says, shots are so frequent in the area. This is Southeast Division, so this is Watts. Shots are so frequent in the area that we just, we didn't pay any attention to it. We didn't call. And uh, so, you know, we had other detectives camps in the area trying to find out if anybody saw anything, if there's any evidence or anything to be located and marked. So in the meantime, this young girl is at the crime scene and so I'm talking, she says, hey, sir, she goes, you, I, I know where that lady lives. I go, you know where she lives at? So she leads me up to a, a place on the 100 and, uh, 98th Street, 120 West, 98th Street, knock on the door. See my name, Patty Mendoza, opens the door and I go, hey, I'm a detective lander from Los Angeles Police Department, South Carolina Homicide. We're uh, down the street investigating a homicide. We have a crime scene down there and uh, we have a female victim. I have a picture of her from her face up and I just want to see if you can positively identify her because people are telling me that you know her. So she looks and she breaks down crying. That's that's Michelle. Well, that particular day, unbeknown to me, in the yard just east of me, two of my murder suspects are looking at me right now. They're sitting there looking at me. Talk to her. Then the third murder suspect, Coy Lloyd, Shadow, the, because you got to be called Shadow because he's the only black guy in the Hispanic gang. He walks up, and I remember his words. He says, hey, you saw Michelle? hey last time I saw Michelle, it was about 7 o'clock. She wanted a cigarette. And that's, you know, and I went home. So anyway, this thing starts going and we're, we're doing this investigation. And so we started getting all these leads coming in. So we, uh, we talked to other detectives to compare notes. There's a lady that lives just north of the location on, 90, on 97th Street. And she says that she saw uh, two male Hispanics and a male black, which is absolutely true. Cause that's who my suspects end up being. But she says that these guys were from Carnales gang, which means brothers in Spanish. And so we started working that angle because that's all we get. That's all. That's what we got. We'll come to find out her brother was killed by Carnales gang. So she had an N for Carnales gang members and she wanted to stick LAPD on them. So we did our, we did our due diligence and we're, we're working this thing. So we found out that, uh, through uh, resources that there's only two documented black male gang members in Carnalis. So one guy was on probation and he, he was doing, he was on a crew doing a community service in Downey and the other guy lived in Kansas. So also we get a, a individual that's going to be an informant. His name was Greco and he used to be in the Carnalis gang, but he was also a former Los Angeles police explorer. So he's talking to us and stuff. So my partner and I, Chuck Holly, we're on a plane because uh, homicide is the ultimate crime, and we t we turn we we turn over every stone. There's no no stones left unturned. I mean, we if you do a murder in the city of Los Angeles, uh, we're coming for you. Well, I mean, we we that's just the way it is, and I mean that we'll go we'll we'll go to you. We have guns. We'll travel. 
So anyway, we're on a plane, we're in Kansas, and while we're there, we, we go to this little township, and there's a city marshal there, and we end up seeing, uh, uh, our suspect's supposed to have CXL inside of his neck. When we get there, and this guy doesn't have that, so we eliminate this guy, but while we're there, our informant, Mr. Greco, gets shot to drive by shooting, killed. Wow. So uh, we decide that, hey, well, at this internment site, which is the uh, right border of Palos Verdes and Harbor Division, off of Gaffey, of Western, we're going to be up there and we're going to see what gangsters show up and see if we see a, any other male blacks there. So I'm in a van with my partner and, and SID photos. So we're taking photos and everything. And next to the the decedent Greco, his uncle uh, was a Los Angeles police officer. And we never met him, even to this day. I never met him, but we knew that he worked Harbor Division. And he was standing next to his sister trying to consult her with all these gangsters around. And I remember telling my partner, I go, hey, man. I go, if this, if this goes south and these gangsters start trying to take on that policeman there, I go, we're going to unass this van with these shotguns and take care of business. And I meant that. Yeah. So anyway, we, uh, you start seeing these gangsters leaving, and they're putting guns and waistbands. and They're not flashing on him, but we can see him. So we call in because that's actually sheriff's area. So we do that. So now it's, uh, we have a thing called a 60-dayer. So if you're going to solve a murder in 60 days, I call it penalty paper. You got to write this long, drawn-out report what you've done up until this point, what your future plans are, and how you plan on solving this murder. So day 59, my partner, Chuck Holly, was on military leave. And we, I get a call from another, uh, another former explorer, a guy named Salsa. Salsa calls me and says, hey, he calls, hey, Mo, you got a message. I call him up. He goes, hey, uh, I know about this murder on 98th Street. And I go, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, he says, I have a female named Consuelo Rodriguez. Her daughter's name is Patty Mendoza. She wants to... She wants to move, but she told me her daughter knows who did the murder. Long story short, I go out to the house, knock on the door. Patty answers the door. Hey, Patty. I said, I just received. That's the same Patty you talked to day one. Day one. Yeah. I just received solid information that you know who committed the murder. Now I know that. So it works two ways. You can either voluntarily call me down to the station or I'm going to arrest you for accessory. She comes down to the station. Can I get my kid? Because, you know, I, I have a baby. Say, yeah. So I call this my happy meal murder. We're on the way to the station. I pull into McDonald's. I buy her son a happy meal. She told me everything. So we ended up going out, and I remember going out to Rialto and arresting Corey Lloyd, and you know, and the other two, and we arrested the one guy at his house right there at 117 West 98th Street across the street. He's he's the brains of the operation. He's 17 years old. Sugar Bear. Then uh, there was one guy named Pirate still wanted. I remember telling this parents, his mother, hey, you know what? He needs to turn himself in. If he doesn't, I go, I says, I says, we're going to, it's not going to end good for him. So I remember she, uh, within two hours, he turned himself into Norwalk sheriffs. And then I remember interviewing him. One of the things that stood out to me is when I went to the, the decedent's autopsy and when the toxicology came back from the serology and everything, the, the, everything came back, she had stage one gonorrhea. So I'm interviewing this knucklehead. And he goes, yeah, you know, Michelle was stuck on me, but, you know, I, I didn't want to do anything because I got burned. My girlfriend burned me. I go, what do you mean your girlfriend burned you? Uh, she gave me gonorrhea. Bingo, home run. So, anyway, uh, as we speak now, I've been retired uh, since, uh, from LAPD since 04, but from the DA's office since 2016. Uh, those guys are still in jail. Yeah. You know, and, you know, so I had that case, and I had a serial murder case. So I had some, some, some very uh, – 28 capers during my, my, my tenure. You 
you were you had a, an outstanding career. You uh, worked in an era which I think is uh, one of those one of those you know everybody talks about their era. You know you hear sports players talk about well back in this era, but but you worked in an era when Los Angeles had a lot of different things going on. A lot of homicides. You were homicide. A lot of drugs. A lot of dope. And you were working dope capers. A lot of you know uh, just gangster activity. And and I'm not saying that any of that is is not there anymore. But you know when you you put on top of that the Olympics and the, the riots and, and, and earthquakes and things like that. There was a time there where um, you know getting up and going to work every day was an adventure, right? Oh, every every single day. I mean even. Uh, when I got promoted to the rank of sergeant, you know, that, uh, Southwest Watts was probably one of the most violent places around. And that's one of the places where, uh, as you know, as a, as a supervisor, 99.9% of the time, you don't get calls for service. You know, you respond to monitor your officers or Southeast was so busy that we would get calls for service and we would get shooting calls for service. I mean, and, and you got, you know, you're talking, you got 18 in a, in a division like that. You already have 18 units out and they're all busy, but these guys would make time. I mean, you know, they, they like certain supervisors are just keeping it real here. And I, I could get a call like, Hey, uh, 18 L 30, send me that call. And all of a sudden the, the guys would come up, Hey, I, you know, 18, uh, Adam 63 cancel L 30. Show me respond to that call. I mean, they would make yourself available. Hey, L 30, show me still rolling, but it was just busy back then and uh it was just it was it was interesting and i um i, I can remember uh, uh you know my my last also involved shooting was that as a sergeant was at northeast division and i i labeled that in the book the fiddler on the roof shooting and um i remember um uh, going to roll call and detective maria foster came to roll call she was hey you know we at the uh k-mark there was a i mean i mean yeah at the k-mark at fletcher seven down the road there was a uh, robbery that occurred today and she described the suspects and this suspect stood out cause he had a long ponytail down to his butt, tattoos on both arms, you know, male Hispanic. And, and so she, and she says, he hangs around a leader place of fish, so, ah, whatever. So I'm doing administrative paperwork. That's what sergeants do. I'm in the station. I send my folks out. I go, Hey man, anybody gets this guy, man, it's a, it's accommodation. You get a, you know, a, you know, I'll write your accommodation and that's a good thing. So I had officers out rolling around, rolling around. I'm an hour in the station. I come out and I'm just driving down uh, Figueroa, heading northbound, uh, passing Avenue 5. So I get to the leader place, there's a Dewiner Schnitzel. So I look over to the left. What are the chances of me seeing a male Hispanic with a ponytail down to his butt and <laughs> tattoos on both arms? And I'm thinking, Harkins, that could be the guy. I'm not sure. So I do it as a supervisor. I do what you're supposed to do. I, I continue driving northbound. I make a U-turn. I tell uh, communications division, hey, I, I'm going to be cold six and monitoring a possible 211 suspect wanted. Uh, let me get an additional unit. So 11837, Gonzalez, his partner, they, you know, uh, uh, show us some route. And we're, we're 30 seconds out. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm in the low ready out of the car. Low ready for your uh, listeners is I got my gun in a low ready position. Pointed down, but I'm monitoring the suspect because our, our, the impression we had was an armed suspect. So he has on a, a fanny pack. He looks up, he sees me, he sees the car, uh, the unit going cold three. So they come in a in an easterly direction. They get the figure. They start turning southbound. That's to me. That's the only thing they did good that day because the guy <laughs> took off running. 
because we're part of he's at the wiener still, so they didn't understand. <laughs> so the guy takes off running, he's running southbound. There's an AMP and Mini Mark. This guy's digging in his in his fanny pack. Gasoline sparks go can go boom. Mo Landerman getting killed today. So I kind of mounted the guy. Then he started running back northbound between a, a house just just west of the gas station and start traversing fences in a westerly direction. So I'm running back down the street, and I got cover running, I'm following, following. So he gets up on a pitch roof. By that time, you got an Officer Bilal and Officer Monte Dioka, who's a probationer, and they pull up right in front, and I'm kind of post. So I can see the blade of the gun in the guy's hand as he's turning towards these officers, and the officer involved shooting the curves. And I remember, uh, they, hey, hey, Sarge, you want to set a perimeter? And I was like, no, he's down. Yeah. He was, but the only thing that I had that day, I mean, I could see his arm. I only had lower the, his lower extremities. I didn't have anything, no upper extremities and stuff. And as you know, we, we, we shoot to stop. We don't shoot to kill. We shoot to stop. Yeah. So anyway, the uh, air unit came over, and they saw the guy up on the rooftop, and he's got his hands up, bleeding profusely out the leg. He's taken into custody. RHG comes out, and they locate the evidence that he threw. And I remember uh, Officer Hankins, an officer named Pucci, going up on the hooking ladder. Officer Hankins... Uh, was a black male officer, as myself. He was bald, like I was back then. But he was a police officer, too, which means he didn't have any rank, right? And I had sergeant stripes on. I had long sleeve shirts on that day and everything. So I remember the guy, we get down, and the guy's down the gurney, and he looks at Hankins, he goes, hey, you're the one who shot me. And I remember moving Hankins out the way. I go, no, hey, it was me. How do you like the way that works? <laughs> right? but, uh, just That was just uh, one of many capers that I had yeah. you know, towards the end. You know the uh, if you had to, to you know, and I and I'm not going to put. Give me your thoughts because I I tell people this. You know, people were thinking about coming on and, and things like that, and I tell them, you know, if I if if I was if I were to do it all over again, I would have kept a diary because there's so many capers day in and day out that happen. Uh, I've forgotten more than I than I remember. Um, but it, real life is truer than fiction. And, yes. you know, and the things that you do and things that you see, uh, and even the smallest things you do and the things that you see, you want, you know, if you want, you could be retired 15 years on the road and just kind of go back and, and, and refresh your memory on some of those things, you'd be amazed. And, and, and it all, a lot of it bring a smile to your face. I mean, just reading your book, um, you know, so many of those names in there just brought a smile to my face. I worked with some, I worked with a lot of those people. A couple of them were classmates. Uh, I, I knew a lot of them. And, and I was, and I was also a little shocked at how many had RIP behind them. Uh, we lost, yeah. lost, lost a lot of people over the years, but um, if you were to, you know, talk to somebody who, who says, Hey, Mo, I'm thinking about going on in the department. Uh, what, what should I know? What should I, what should I, what should I think about? Well, I think right now uh, they need to look at everything right now. I mean, it's it's uh if if you're going on there to be popular, then you're in the wrong profession. Because right now the job has changed, the mission has changed. Um, uh, they're trying to uh, the contortionists in LA. I mean the mayor, that contortionist slash mayor. He's trying to reimagine police work right now in Los Angeles. And we I could see from from the outside it's not going to work. There was a time when I would tell people, hey. You know, go to LAPD, but it's just changed so much. But you need to, if, if that's your passion, then you need to you need to know what you're getting into. Your family needs to also know because your family takes that ride with you. Mm -hmm. 
you know, they definitely take that ride with you. And if it's, if, you know, if, if you're struggling at work and stuff, you're going to bring it home. So, I mean, you got to have an outlet. You know, I, I tell people keep, keep God in your life. You know, that's important. You know, keep your uh, good communication skills with your family, you know, your kids, spend time with your kids, invest in your kids, invest in your wife or your significant other, whoever you're with. I mean, just, it's just, it's important to do those things because it's a, it's a different world and stuff. And some guys, you know, they'll turn to alcoholism or other vices and stuff. And that's not good. You know, you got to kind of maintain, but it's a, it's a different world right now out there. Absolutely, brother. Well, Mo, man, I, I thank you so much for joining us and, and uh, let people know again where they can, where they can get your book. Well, yeah, book baby. Barnes and Nobles, Amazon Books, and you just uh, you can just type in my name, Maurice L. Landrum, and it'll come up. And the name of the book once again is Gangsters, Narcotic Homicide, Protecting the Thin Blue Line, and it's it's all true. It's a it's a true book. And one of the biggest things, and you probably noticed it while we were talking, Swoop is uh, it's it's uh, it's easy to remember the truth. I didn't have to study like I didn't recall because it happened, and I remember like it's yesterday. Lies, you got to kind of think, oh, uh, did I say this or did I say that? <laughs> what did that? I say last time? <laughs> yeah. well, that's not right, is it? It's all true. And, and uh, one of the things that I did, um, I used my team's report for exact dates. Yeah. So this is, hey, I got, prom- I, I, tra- I got transferred this day. I was promoted on this day from detective. I made sergeant on this day. I went to this division. That's why it's so, it's just dead on accurate, you know, what happened. And, and then I obviously, I, like you said, I reported the good, bad, and ugly. So I, my complaint investigations, I talked about them. My officer involved shootings, talked about them. Just capers in general, talk about the nepotism, the failed leadership, and, the, and you know, people that I named in the book, it's true and it happened and stuff and there's documentation. So it's not like, Oh, Hey, this guy, he's slandered. No, it's not slander. These, these events happen. And some of these people's stuff is in the newspaper and the LA times stuff statements that they said. So I'm just regurgitating what happened. And then what they said to confirm it. Awesome. Like I said, uh, Maurice Landrum, Gangsters, Narcotics, and Homicide, Protecting the Thin Blue Line. We'll have a link in the, uh, in the show notes uh, uh, for the book as well. Mo, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, continued success, my brother. Thank you for having me as a guest. And just real quickly closing out, I'm in the process of writing my second book. It's going to be – it's just starting right now, but it's going to be called Law Enforcement Chaos 2.0. <laughs> Love it. Uh, we'll be, be, we'll be getting back. Uh, like I said, we're back on the air now and, uh, we'll, we'll probably be back with another guest here in a couple of weeks. So, uh, thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect those of talk story radio, its affiliates or sponsors. 